0: things I will admit that really has drawn me to you is your distinction. Like, you know, it was it was very reminiscent of my dad who uh, ran away from home and joined the army I think at 14 or 15. Oh fought, in, fought in World War II and Korea. Went in wow. enlisted then went to OCS. Wow. Yeah and, and that term going drill sergeant, you know, people that know me say that I can be wound up sometimes and I tell them <laughs> I'm a pussy cat compared to my father. <laughs> The stories are legend about oh, the old, wow. and we called him the old man. Yeah. So I subscribe to this theory, Charles, that we learn just as much from bad leaders and bad bosses as we do good ones. If, 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 if we're thinking. Yes, sir. If we're steeped. Yes, sir. And so... You know, This is Mike Bassett, and welcome to Legal Grounds, conversations on life, leadership, and law. All the way back in 1990, Liz and I made a down payment on our very first home in the then barely known town of Waxahachie, Texas. Funny enough, it was just the mailing address that was Waxahachie. For reasons I still really never understood, our two boys fell inside the neighboring school district of Red Oak, This really doesn't matter to the story today, except to illustrate the fact that, back then, we lived in the middle of nowhere, or as some of the leaders in my military days would have called it, BFE. Much of the neighborhood was still undeveloped back then. If I remember right, there were about six other properties and some massive open fields, all enclosed in a rectangular figure-eight shape of gravel roads. As anyone who has lived in the country knows, each time a new house went up, our house got lots of visitors from all sorts of critters, big and small, that the construction stirred up. As a new homeowner, and as someone who was raised in the deserts of West Texas, I ended up learning a lot about animals over the next two decades we lived in the country. The massive oak trees in our backyard were homes to bats and occasionally some pesky bagworms. The small creek that ran just behind the fence line attracted everything from howling coyotes to house cats, while cicadas and June bugs often made eating family meals outside an active enterprise. Now, we eventually built a detached garage that also doubled as basically a big doghouse for our three mutts. And while it wasn't uncommon for the occasional mouse to end up making a nest in some small corner... Having three dogs typically kept away anything bigger than a squirrel. Now, that didn't mean we didn't find the things bigger than a squirrel proudly displayed in pieces on the back porch. So after about 10 years of living in Red Oak, it wasn't much of a surprise when my youngest son came running in the house shouting that there was a possum in the garage. What was a surprise was that he swore it was still alive. Dad, he said a little out of breath, I know I'm a little freaked out, but I promise you, I went when I went to get it with the shovel, I saw it breathe. Now, yes, I know what the term playing possum means. But at this point, the dogs had killed enough of them over the years that I was convinced it was just another gift the dogs had left us. Somewhat irritated, I strolled into the garage, grabbed a flat-headed shovel, poked the animal, and waited. Nothing. Dad, I swear it was breathing. It didn't stop moving until I made a sound when it freaked me out, my youngest son reminded me standing by my side. With things to do, and maybe a little too much bravado, I scooped up the limp animal and began to carry it back towards the fence line. I figured if it was really dead, a scavenger would come along and scoop it up. And if it was alive, then at least it would be the hell off of my property. Now, I'm going to say I had about a quarter of an acre left before I was at the back fence line when, like a cartoon character, this possum decides to casually sit up in the shovel. And that's when we both made eye contact. What happened next was a gut reaction, and if I could apologize to the possum, I would. It turns out, if you're in the market for a good possum catapult, I'd highly recommend a craftsman flat-headed shovel with the original heavy wooden handle. The extra weight helps add to your momentum at the end of your flinging motion. The only things I remember after that were a loud splash in the creek behind the house and the sound of scurrying far and fast in the other direction. Now, there are a lot of lessons that can be taken from this hopefully hilarious tale, but as I got ready for today's episode, I tried to get inside the mind of my guest. So here's the three lessons I took away. One. One. It's better to slow down and listen to people before acting, even if you think you know exactly what you need to do. Two, every situation is different. And three, every possum can play dead. Some (coughs) simply do it much better than others. Charles Hamm is a veteran marine sergeant and retired entrepreneur. He holds a BA degree from David Lipscomb University in classical Greek and Hebrew, and is a passionate student of ancient history. I found Charles, like so many other folks have, through his incredibly viral LinkedIn posts. Over the past couple of years, Charles has become well-known for sharing his thoughts about life and lessons learned from 75 years of navigating the twists, turns, and ups and downs of life often the perilous roads we travel. With posts that typically reach the engagement level of tens of thousands, Charles was approached about writing a book on his lessons for others. Initially skeptical, he ended up working with a team that brought his musings from the rocking chair to the written word. His book is called Ponder On It, Pilgrims, a reference to how he signs off his posts and is his effort to show readers how and why wisdom is the key to living in a chaotic world through stories of family, friends, nature, and all the animals who call it home. And I couldn't be more excited to have him on the program today. Charles Hamm, welcome to Legal Grounds.
1: Thank you, Mr. Mike. It's an honor to be here.
0: So have you ever run into a possum that played dead that well?
1: Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir.
0: I thought everything was going well until he raised up and we made eye contact and it was just me (laughs) or him. And I I bet you I flung him a good probably 50 or 60 feet.
1: (laughs) Well, that was probably the ride of his life.
0: Uh, you know, and I know he's fine because I heard him scurrying off. Yeah. So Charles, normally I start these conversations by looking back on my guest's life, but you've just retired here at the beginning of 2022, and less than two weeks ago, you re- from recording this, you completed your 76th journey around the sun, as you put it yes, on sir. LinkedIn. So first, yes, sir. belated happy birthday. Thank you, sir. So with that in mind and looking forward, what do you hope these next few trips around the sun hold for you, Charles?
1: Well, uh, just the good life as, as I've come to know it and live it. Um, aging is inevitable and it, it's somewhat amusing to me. In one sense of the word, I'm finding that I'm having the time of my life and, and, uh I think that might be a lesson to younger people who think that you can't even imagine being as old as I am, and, and yet uh, one day they will be, uh, Lord willing, and I'm, I'm thankful for the years I've had, and I just look forward to everyone that I have left and uh, tend to keep want to just keep doing what I'm doing and and keep looking ahead and keep dreaming until Uh, the sweet chariot comes swinging in low for me.
0: So here's what's interesting. I, you know, I knew a lot of folks that are in their seventies and maybe early eighties and, and you probably know them too, Charles. And some of them are, I'm just going to say it are probably, are sort of bitter and pissed off Yes, sir. at at where they at. Why do you think that your approach is one of wonder and gratitude?
1: Well, I think, it is because I want it to be. Uh, so much of our life is uh, based on conscious decisions that we can make. And, and we have to talk, take stock of ourselves and uh, understand who we are, uh, understand the cycles of life, and and choose to remain hopeful and, and optimistic. and. And Always have a dream. If, if I'm 90 and still alive, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a dream. Uh, I'm going to be looking ahead to something that I want to accomplish, and, and when I'm gone, it'll, I'll be right in the middle of something, I, I hope, and that someone else will have to finish it up.
0: Well, that's where you want to be found, is doing the work. So at 76, what are the things you still want to do? I mean, what are some concrete things that you're like, you know what I need to do? I need to get done in the next year or two, these things.
1: I, uh, I want to write another book. I've already started on it.
0: Look and at you. you got one published and you're starting another one.
1: I've already started another one. Uh, the title of the first one is Ponder on Pilgrims. And the title of the second one will be, It's a Dang Shame, Pilgrims. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but I can't be, wait to read that one. It, it'll be a little bit sort of the same, but with a, with a different approach. Uh, the emphasis essentially on the second book will be what a shame it is for us not to be ourselves and not to understand ourselves and to try to be like someone else and to die the world, the, the uniqueness of us. And I, I think that's uh, an important lesson in life. There's, there's only one you and there's only one me and we can't be anyone else. And yet so many people seem to try. And I'll, I'll make that point through a series of stories and Texas grit and things like that are in the first book and, and try to make it readable. And uh, uh, that's, that's the plan right now anyway.
0: You know, that comment makes me think there is a Franciscan priest by the name of Richard Rohr that does this great series on the first and the second half of life. And I cannot Mm -hmm. put it near as eloquently as he does. But one of the things he talks about is in our first half of life, Charles, so much of what we're doing is trying to live up to an image, live up to something. You you worked in the oil field to make a good hand, make your bones. Yes, Yes, sir. And yet, maybe we find that when we round second, maybe that's just not the best use of our energy.
1: That's quite possible. It's quite possible. I never thought of being an author. Uh, and I've always liked to write, but just for my own amusement uh, more than anything else. And LinkedIn uh, gave me a forum. And even then, that wasn't my intent in going on LinkedIn, but I, I saw all of these folks on LinkedIn and they were angry and confused and it seemed like the whole world was, was, was just frustrated and to the state of despair. And, and I, I wanted to say something to them. So I, I started writing articles that, more or less address that subject and telling people, you know everything is going to be okay. just lighten up and get a grip and 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 uh, don't worry about things that you can't do anything about. Some people are just uh, th- their whole thought process all day long is what's going on in Washington and uh, I, I think about what's going on in Round Mountain. You know, <laughs> up, up there with my critters, and what's going on in my own life, and try to have a little influence with people who will listen to me. And I, 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 I found a, a bit of an audience on LinkedIn, and then uh, uh, the opportunity afforded itself to actually write a book. And I, I, uh, it's been a totally new experience to me, and I've learned a lot, and it's just been been a wonderful adventure.
0: Well, and we're going to talk about writing a book. But let me ask you this. When did you actually start posting on LinkedIn? When was it?
1: It was probably about four years ago.
0: Okay, pre, um, Pre-pandemic.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. But even at that, there there was just so much division and, and anger uh, and 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 just rage that you saw in our country, and 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 really the world, and I felt like I had something to say. And well, you and, do
0: have something to say.
1: Yeah. So so I said it. I <laughs> it, it's a Ponderotic pilgrims. That's that's what I have to say.
0: So and on this theme of you know as you get older you you kind of start to maybe focus on the things that are important, and I know you've thought about this. Looking back on your life, if seventy-six-year-old Charles met thirty or forty-year-old Charles, or hell, twenty-year-old Charles, what would you tell him?
1: Well, that that's an interesting question. I I would I would probably tell him about the the four golden questions. Uh, I think that if I had understood that. Uh, and had that mindset through my life, things would have been different. But sometimes I think if this, things had been different back when I was younger, they might've been worse. So, <laughs> and, you,
0: and you may not I, have been where you are today.
1: Well, I, I feel like where I am today at 76 is the sum total of, of my life as it was, uh, all those years. And I, uh, I made, I made my mistakes and, uh, I, I learned my lessons, and as I got older, I started uh, I started pondering on it and, and tried. Uh, someone asked me one time if I could define myself, how I would define myself in one sentence, and I said, well, at best, I'm an old man struggling not to be an old fool. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I think that kind of sums it up. I... Yeah, it's a daily struggle to, uh, you don't become wise, you have to fight for it with every decision that you have to make. Uh, you could go either way any day of the week. So
0: I read a uh, quote one time that and I'm, I'm going to butcher it that that wisdom is the comb that life gives us after we've lost all of our hair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, I would say there was some truth to that. That's why I'm sitting here with a hat on. Uh,
0: too <laughs> now we're going to get to some of these stories that you post but here's my first question tell listeners how do you go from being a 72 year old guy who says you know i'm going to share some of these nuggets of wisdom i've been turning over in my head because at least the linkedin world seems to sort of be burning down to having posts with thousands of interactions that lead you to writing the book? Is it just a gradual progression, Charles, or did you have kind of a goal in mind when you started? That,
1: my, my only goal was to write something and put it on, post it on LinkedIn that if people read it, maybe it would be helpful to them and, and, and see things in a different way. Uh, writing a book had never crossed my mind. And then folks started saying, Charles, you need to write a book. And I played them off and, and I kept hearing this and I'd, I'd tell them, well, I'm, I'm pondering on it and, and they'd go away. And one day, uh, uh, a man named Mr. Philip Reed, I acknowledged him, uh, in my book in, in the dedication, uh, he said he 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 sent a message on one of my posts and he said Charles you need to write a book and I, and I started giving him the old line well I've been pondering on it and uh, no no I I, I don't want to hear that he said you need to write a book and and he just set it on me and I I tease him a bit he's the man that wouldn't take no for an answer and he knew a publisher and he contacted her. And she got in touch with me, and we started talking. And the next thing you know, uh, I was writing a book. So uh, that's, that's really kind of the story. Uh, I just kind of stumbled into it. Uh, and the root of it, I guess, was that uh, a lot of folks on LinkedIn liked what I was writing.
0: And you had somebody that kept just coming back at you. You need to write a book. Yeah, and- yes. Yes. And even when, so they sort of just kind of foisted it all on you at some point and said, okay, here's a publisher, here's what you need to do. Yes. And then you, and then you start, how long does it take you? Um, how long does it take you from the time you're like, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to put pen to paper to write the book before you get it published and then out in the real world.
1: Well, my first conversation with Mitch, Miss Hillary Jastrom, the, uh, the Mastermind and just absolute genius that created the book. Uh, this was the lady that called me after speaking with mr. Uh, uh, mr. Reed. Uh, it was on April seventeenth of last year, and earlier this week, the paperback was available so uh, approximately well eight or nine months, I guess, from the first contact until I held the held the book in my hand, and people can start buying
0: it. And we're going to put a we're going to put a link to the book uh, in the show notes.
1: Great.
0: So, so, I want to take a step back, and I want to talk about your early life and some of the big influences on you. I don't think it's a coincidence that you, coincidence you open Ponder on a Pilgrim's with a story about staying at your grandparents' house. Yes, sir. So, so, so first, would you mind sharing the listeners this darn funny? St- story about your grandpa's gift, because as you write it, quote, grandpa's gift was a memory before or since I have not laughed with such total unrestrained abandon, abandon and lack of dignity. So start with the story, because I want to hear it out of your mouth.
1: All right. Uh, well, it's a long story. I'll, uh, I woke up at grandma and grandpa's house one morning and I was four years old. Yeah, just just a little guy, and uh, got up, and it was in a small, tiny little house in rural uh, Nicholas County, Kentucky. That's, that's my roots back there, and Grandpa was sitting at the table and kitchen table, and Grandma was fixing breakfast, and after, after we had breakfast, uh, Grandpa looked at me and he, he wasn't the kind of man to ask you things. Grandpa was a, a mite gruff and direct. And even as a little boy, he, he never talked baby talk to me. I mean, he just talked straight. And he looked at me and he said, let's go feed the hogs. And there wasn't any option implied. And, and, and as I look back on it now, it wasn't any of this stuff today. Like, would you like to go with me and feed the hogs? You know, no, it was, let's go feed the hogs. So I was, I was waiting for him to say it because I enjoyed going out with him and we left the house and walked out across the yard and opened the gate and closed it behind us. Never said a word to each other and we're just walking along and I'm trying to keep up with grandpa and he isn't saying anything. And in his usual manner of speaking, he suddenly stopped and said, uh, he pointed his finger at me, and he said, pull my finger. <laughs> and w- without a thought you know, or any hesitation at all, I mean, just as innocent as a four-year-old could be, I just reached up with my hand, got a hold of his finger, and gave it a tug, and and Grandpa tooted. <laughs> And I, four-year-old boys think that's funny anyway, but this was so out of character for Grandpa, and he just walked on like nothing had happened.
0: Oh, completely and, completely stone cold about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. But as I thought about it later, he was probably just as tickled as I was always, but I, I just became hysterical. And, and I, I, I fell down on the ground and I rolled over on my back and I'm just guffling, I'm kicking my heels on the dirt. And I, I, my legs just failed me. I couldn't even hardly stand up. And the, the re, I called it grandpa's gift because of all the gifts that, uh, that anyone's ever given me. Uh, he gave a little four-year-old boy a gift of laughter And now here here he is, 76 years old, 72 years later, talking to you on a podcast. And I still can't talk about it without laughing and and maybe even fighting back a tear or two. It was just a, uh, I, I tell people to make memories and what a wonderful gift to give a little boy. That's, a that's the short story. That's the short version of the story.
0: And I think everybody gets, I think everybody can <laughs> picture it in their mind. And you know what? There's probably a lot of sons out there who maybe have the same story with their father or their grandfather.
1: I would I wouldn't doubt it a bit.
0: I think that is a male thing to do, Charles, but that's oh, probably yes. for another oh, podcast.
1: Yes. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we were a couple of guys, you know. <laughs>
0: So I want to fast forward from four years old. In 1965, you enlist in the Marine Corps, and you end up serving in Vietnam. Yes, sir. Uh, so from the Army to the Marine Corps, thank you for your service.
1: Well, thank you for yours, soldier.
0: So both of my older brothers served tours in Vietnam in Vietnam as well. And while I don't want to ask you anything to share you're not comfortable with, would you tell us a little bit about that time in your life and maybe some of the skills, practical and perf- and personal, that you still use today? Charles, from 1965, some things you learned that you still today rely on.
1: That that's a really interesting question, and I'm glad you phrased it the way you did. You've you've given me an out to talk about things that are that really are important about uh, being in the service. Uh, what? Well, there were so many lessons, but but discipline uh it w- was certainly one of them uh, authority, but I also learned something about leadership uh, from drill instructors of all people and i I had great leaders all through my Marine Corps life. Uh, I had a gunnery sergeant that I, I i i really just adored him, almost like a father. And yet he was the honoriest person I ever saw. He he was just a, he was a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps, an old warrior and fighter. But uh in I I felt I've always been someone that can kind of put themselves out on the outside looking in and going through boot camp was an experience. And with the way my mind worked, I I took note of some things that. Uh, maybe some people didn't stop to think about. In leadership, if you are absolutely consistent, absolutely consistent without a flaw, and you treat all of your people exactly the same way, they'll end up loving you. Uh, when I graduated from boot camp, uh, the feeling that I had toward those outrageous men that I had been with for the last thirteen years was 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 almost a sense of love. If I saw one of those people today, I'd hug them and buy them a beer. I that I, I, they they meant they made me a marine, and and they did what what they had to do to do so and in my own business and experience in life I didn't treat my people uh like a drill instructor treated me but I tried to be totally consistent and I tried to show no favoritism to anybody uh what rules we had were were the rules and uh it's interesting uh I had a great relationship with my guys uh I you know, I, 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 it, we were like a family, and I was the father. And and so I'm the one that told them what they needed to do, and and they called me uh, Mr. C and Mr. Charlie's. Some of them called me Pops, and, you know, we just had a good time. And they even loved it when I, you know, I'd, I'd tell them, I'd threaten them, you know, that if, if, if things didn't get straightened out here pretty quick, I was going to go drill instructor on them. And uh, they loved for me to do that. They they thought it was funny, and so we had a good time. But that's something I learned in the Marine Corps, and and I I uh, well, that's discipline and leader. Those were my leadership goal uh, lessons. Uh, There there were life lessons that. Life is short for some people and, and, and for some people it's, it goes on a little longer and, and uh, the randomness of death Mm. uh, in the Marine Corps. uh, It doesn't matter who you are, how big, how tough, how mean. uh, There's a certain randomness to it. That's beyond anyone's control. And, that is a life lesson. It's it's true. Uh, it's true today. Uh, we we have no guarantee of tomorrow, and never had, and never will. And the old Marines, when I was when when I was in, I don't know. I can only speak for my four years. But uh, senior NCOs were uh, World War II and Korean veterans when I was in. And and these men were like, they were just like gods of war to me. I I, I respected them for that, and they had this uh, fatal uh, fatalism of an infantry man, infantry man. They they believed that if it was your time to go, there wasn't. Anything you could do about it, and it didn't make any difference where you were or what you were doing. You could be at home sitting in a Lazy Boy watching TV, or you could be where we were. It didn't matter. You wasn't going to go unless it was your time to go. And they really believed that. And it, and it served them well in that situation. They, they just had a calm fatalism about them, and they, and they did what they had to do. And that has uh, that has been something that they've passed down to me. I, I have a, a sense of that, that uh, life is what it is, and I cherish every day, but uh, it could come to an end in a moment. My daddy died of a massive heart attack when he was 72, and so I've outlived him now four years, and uh, I've always wondered if that would be my fate. But, I, but I, I'm like the old, old gunnies and first sergeants back in the day. They just don't think about it. You know, maybe yes, maybe no, but there's nothing you can do about it, so you don't worry. And, and that, that's been a great lesson, too.
0: And one of the things that I really loved about my time in the military was you learned accountability. Yes, when sir. You, when you told somebody that you were going to do something, Yes, I told you to something. It just it just got done.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: Um, which is a trait that I think serves us well. One of the things I will admit that really has drawn me to you is your distillation of sort of your worldview. And it was it was very reminiscent of my dad who uh, ran away from home and joined the army, I think at 14 or 15. Oh, Fought, in, fought in World War II and Korea. Went in wow. enlisted, then went to OCS. Wow. Yeah, and, and that term going drill, Sergeant, you know, people that know me say that I can be wound up sometimes. And I tell them I'm a <laughs> pussycat compared to my father. The stories are legend about oh, the old, wow, and we called him the old man. Yeah. <laughs> so I subscribe to this theory, Charles, that we learn just as much from bad leaders and bad bosses as we do good ones. If, 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 if we're thinking.
1: Yes, sir. If we're astute, yes, sir.
0: And so what are a couple of lessons that along the way you have learned from some maybe not so effective leaders that you're like, you know what, that's something I will never do?
1: I, I think the important thing for a leader is to lead. And I've known leaders that did. And I've known leaders that didn't. And if you don't have someone, I have an old fashioned view about this. So there's a lot of books on the market about leadership. And and, uh, my basic philosophy has been uh, leaders lead people and they have people that follow them. And if you want to know if you're a leader, get out to the job site, uh, get out of the truck and get after it and look around every now and then. And if somebody's behind you, you're their leader. Uh, That's uh, simplistically put, but uh, someone has to be in charge for things to go well. And someone has to give direction and leadership to the other people. Now, my style in the oil fields was if we had a problem and, and uh, you know, I'd get the guys around. They, they, they were professionals. They knew their job. And, and we, we'd get in a circle and talk about it. Everybody spoke freely. And one would think we should do this. Another would think she should, we should do that. And I thought we ought to maybe do this. And we'd fuss around a little bit with each other. But I was the one that had to make the decision. We had to do something, and and uh, we can't just sit here and talk about it all day. So I've listened to you guys, and I appreciate you. And maybe I might think, well, wait a minute, uh, uh, Booby, I, I think you're right. You know, now that I think about what you said, we're going to do what you said. But I was still the one that had to decide what we were going to do. And I think we're losing the – with with some of the things that I read about, I, I think we're losing the fact that uh, a leader uh, must lead and, and make the job fun, fun for the guys during the day, but be the decision maker and, and have some rules. And they understand the rules and treat everybody the same if uh, someone gets there late. And it's one particular person, and it's okay. Uh, you can't fuss with another guy the next day because he came in a little late.
0: Yeah, because you you've to, lost all credibility.
1: You, that. you you lose all your credibility. So there's a. My daddy was a, an old fashioned father, and I learned a lot about leadership from him. There was always a certain presence about him that he was the father, and I was the son. We did a lot of things together and had a lot of great times together, but we didn't play around, wrestle in the floor and all of that. He had a certain dignity about him. And when he spoke, uh, I took that man seriously. And if I started bumping up uh, against the edge of his patience, I knew I better start backing off quick. Because I didn't want that man to get up and start taking that belt off, oh. <laughs> which he was he was known to do. You know, uh, when I was a little boy, I I got my butt spanked, and not not that often because uh, a little of that went a long way with me. And and yet I uh, uh, finally grew up and became a man and. And daddy became the best friend I
0: ever had. It's amazing how smart our fathers get the older we get. I know the older oh, yeah. I got, my, my old man became brilliant. I don't know how to happened. <laughs> yeah, you that. Know, but you make a point, Charles, and, that, and this is something I see in a lot of younger leaders. And I echo back to what my dad used to tell me. I'm going to say the G-rated way. He would say, I'm not your friend. And you don't have to like me. Right. I don't really care if you do. But you are. Gonna respect me, and I think yes. a lot of people would rather be liked than respected. Yeah. End of, and at the end of the day, I think the coin of the realm, Charles, is respect.
1: It it really is, and to have respect, you have to know what you're doing. Uh, you 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 have you've you you've, you've, you've got to be knowledgeable about what you're doing, and 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 there again. Uh. uh Lead, lead your people, and 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 treat them all with respect. And treating them with respect is is expecting them to uh, live up to a standard of excellence, uh, and and not have low expectations of them, and to be able to tell them flat footed, you know, you're you're better than this, and I expect better of you than this. Now we're going to get this right, you know. Mm-hmm. He still has his job, but but uh, you're 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 providing mentorship and leadership to them.
0: So let's talk about the book, and the official title is "Ponder on It, Pilgrims: The Bucolic Mark Twain on Critter Councils, Cookie Bandits, and Texas Grit." So yes, anybody That say, anybody that says that writing a book is easy has either done it once or not at all. Right. <laughs> Now give us a rundown of what you aim to put in the book and why it is you took the time to get off the porch and snuff out the cigar and write the book.
1: I, I, I became motivated once I saw a path to doing it. And I hadn't, I had not seen a path to actually, I didn't know the first thing about uh, how to, how to publish a book. Daunting. Sure. Yes. And, and all of a sudden, people started coming into my lives and, and the door opened. And the, 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 the motivation of it was I, I just felt like I had something to say. And I felt like there was I, – I would sit literally on the cabin porch in a rocking chair – with my coffee cup in my hand. And there was always debate on LinkedIn about what was in the coffee cup. And I never said, but uh, I uh, thinking about something is one thing. Pondering on it is another and pondering on it is when you just really start putting your mind to it and taking it apart and, and, and dissecting it and, 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 coming to conclusions and uh in in the quiet of 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 that place uh i was able to to have some clarity about lessons that i had learned and uh just decided to, to put it all down in a book and i i started it off with a story that would uh make people laugh and yet uh, give a good lesson, make memories for people. You know, live, live, involve yourselves in the lives of other people, especially the ones that you love, and and make memories that they'll have for a lifetime and that they'll cherish. It's a wonderful gift to give to someone else.
0: It is, and there, there's so much to unpack in the book, and I, and I cannot recommend it to listeners enough. But one of the things I loved is the stories of what you call your critters.
1: Which yes, sir. At
0: first, I kind of thought, oh, fun, these little allegories involving animals. And while there are some of those, a lot of the animals in these stories are real. Oh, yes. So, so, so at the risk of sounding like a city slicker, tell me about these animals and how you came to befriend so many of them.
1: Well, they're the critters that live on Round Mountain. And uh, there's, there's a doe, uh, not a big old buck but a, a white-tailed doe that caught my attention. And for re- reasons that uh, I, I, I don't understand, I have no idea, I, I just called her Thelma. And Thelma, uh, I'm, I'm a storyteller. Uh, uh, so Thelma became my right hand on Round Mountain and the one that looked after things when I wasn't there. And she was the matriarch of the mountain and the enforcer of the Round Mountain Critter Code of Conduct. And everyone knew that you don't disrespect Thelma, you know, you, you, and there's rules. We, we, we had, had a code of conduct. And she was the co-chair of the Round Mountain Critter Councils that we had every Saturday morning, where all the leads of the various critter clans came. Spuds was the leader of the wild hog pack and a a big old uh, burly wild boar. And, And Spuds was a little cantankerous and clashed with Thelma at times, but she kept him in line. And then there were bobcats named Miffin and muttons and Bo. And there were coyotes named Rex and Hank. And the list just goes on and on. A coon named Rocco. And I just, I started telling tales of Round Mountain. And it was one of the things that first got me noticed. Uh, I'd, I'd start some story about it, but I'd always begin the story with, with some little one liner that might make people stop and think, uh, something a, a little bit deep, something for them to ponder on. And sometimes they were serious and maybe sometimes they were funny. Uh, I said, uh, don't corner something meaner than you are. You know, that, that was one of them. And, and then I just move on with the, with uh talk, talking about the last round mountain Critter council and whatever what all was going on on round mountain uh, I, another one was uh, uh, everybody thought Goliath was too big to hit and David thought he was too big to miss it's all how you look at it you know and, and just just stuff like that and people they, they seemed to enjoy it and they got to the, they got to know the characters in the in the book and there's one particular story that I've told that about Rocco, his great grandfather, Lord knows how many times removed, can actually claim a uh, descend, uh, uh, descendancy uh, to the Alamo. And, and here's the story. When, when Davy Crockett uh, first came to uh, Texas, he stayed at Brown Mountain for a couple of months and while he was there uh uh Roscoe, which was Rocco's grandfather, just thought davy davy looked looked terrible and he needed a new hat, so he set himself up and actually sacrificed his life and Davy made the hat that he wore at the alamo and so they all know their heritage. And so Rocco, the present generation, is extremely proud of his grandpa Roscoe and claims direct linkage to the Alamo. (laughs) And the stories go on and on. When my my grandkids were little, I'd uh, walk around with them in the woods and I'd tell them stories. I actually told them this story and they were so sweet and innocent. They just believed everything I said. And as they started getting a little older, they started, I started getting, Grandpa, is that true? Is that true? And, and here was what I always said. I, I, I said, well, the story's told. And if a storyteller tells you that the story's told, that's all he's claiming. And whether it's really true or not, he doesn't really know. He's just telling you the story. And that's, that's how I got out of that. And so anytime they ever ask me if something's true, I just say, the story's told. And it's bad manners, by the way, to keep pressing the issue once the storyteller tells you the story's told. And so now my oldest is uh, graduating from high school and a couple of months. Uh, and it's a whole different world with them. But they're still my cookie bandits. It always will be.
0: You know, and you will probably, they will, that that will probably be passed down in the family. I hope uh, so. You know, one of, as we wrap up, I was listening to one of your podcasts and you had this great line, we all know what a fool is. So in a way we know wisdom when we see it, it's the opposite of a fool. Yes. What, are, what, what are some of the ways, Charles, that the minute this folks turn off this podcast, they can become more wise and give folks just a little more grace. Because I, I gotta tell you, brother, I think grace is in pretty short supplies these days.
1: It is. Um wisdom puts us on a level uh above knowledge and and even understanding. And when we give no thought to our actions and add, act at the spur of the moment, and or or, or say something without thinking. Uh, once words are spoken, they they can't be unspoken, and people never stop and think about these things. And the I've I've been as big a fool at times in my life as any human being could possibly be. And I've never tried to present myself as anything other than an old man struggling not to be an old fool. But uh, we can learn lessons from our own mistakes if we, if we stop and think about it. And I'll try to get the four golden questions in right now. Please. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's four constants in life. And this came to me rocking up on the porch at Brown Mountain. I was thinking about this. At any given time during the day, we could be doing something or about to do something, about to say something or saying something. So it's acting and talking and then on another level, the third is things that we think. And the fourth is things that we feel. So acting and, and talking and saying but things, things that you think and things that you feel. And people don't exercise discipline in their lives, hardly in any of them. And to take a moment to stop and think about, the the golden questions are, what would a wise person do? What would a wise person say? What would a wise person think? And what would a wise person feel? What would a wise person do? What would a wise person say? Give it some thought. But one of the biggest ones I think that's helped me is what would a wise person think? Think about what's going through your mind during the day when you're driving around in your car or when you have some moments where you're just alone with your thoughts. What are you thinking about? Are, are, are you thinking about some negative thing? Are you worrying? Are you, is, is, is your thoughts bringing you down and, and, and making you less than happy? You can control your thoughts. When I see my mind starting going off in some way, I, I just say, "Stop!" You know, think about something else. There's no no sense in sitting here and 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 being this way. And it's the same way with what you feel. Uh, some people feel anger and rage. They feel inferior. They feel uh, 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 abused. Uh, uh, I could go on and on with. The things that we allow to get down in our hearts, and yet you can fill your heart with with love and joy and peace if you take control of what you're of of, uh, 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 of your life. So that's it in a nutshell. I think we're running out of time.
0: No, we're fine. Well, here's my uh, final qu- here's my final question, and you bring it up, and it segues nicely. Normally, my last question, Charles, to the folks on the podcast, are what gives you hope. But I think we've kind of covered that near the top of the conversation. So I'm going to flip the script and ask you okay. this. Charles, what gives you peace?
1: What gives me peace? And, and this to me is the foundation upon which a happy life is to be built. You have to be able to take control of, of yourself. And, and be who you are and, and, and what you want to be. I don't want to be a person who worries. I don't want to be a person who who dwells on unhappy things. I, I don't want to be a person that uh, that says insensitive things to people. Uh, I, I don't want to be a person that acts uh, impetuously. uh but generally, there's just a, uh, I call it uh, just a calmness uh, is as another word for peace. To just learn to be quiet and calm, whatever the situations may be, and when everybody else is just going that poop crazy, you you be the one in the room that that. Is just kind of taking stock of things and 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 be calm and not let yourself get upset about uh, about things and and you have to be able to forgive and the first person you need to forgive is yourself uh, and and a lot of people uh, struggle with that uh, and I, I don't I, I've I've forgiven myself for. Uh, f- for a lot of things. Uh, there's nothing I could do about it now. It's over and done. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to beat myself up over it. Uh, I- I'll move on. Did I even halfway answer your question?
0: You nailed it. Now, oh, okay. <laughs> let me ask you, if folks want to buy the book, and we're going to put the link in the show notes, where do they go? Can we get on Amazon and get it?
1: Yes, sir. It's easy as, easy as pie. You can just do a search on on Amazon, Ponder on It Pilgrims. It'll pop up on my website, uh, charlesham.com. If you remember my name, it's easy to remember. You can you can click a link to Amazon on my website in the book section, uh, and then uh, I have a. Legal
0: grounds was written,
1: recorded, and produced by Dust Devil Press. You, but, uh, to learn more about today's uh, guest to and for links to the be, topics be, and materials be, be discussed, be, be please check out our be, show be, notes. You'll have no problem. Thank for more so information so for on the Mike Bassett, really visit thebassettfirm.com. To the so, so. Questions, topic ideas, and guest suggestions can be emailed to at thebassettfirm.com.